On Halloween night, 1900, a 10-year-old boy named Ike wanted to go trick-or-treating with his older brothers. When his parents told him that he was too young, he went into an uncontrollable rage, ran out the front door, and started punching the apple tree until uh, his knuckles were raw and red from blood. Ike uh, Ike's father lashed him with a hickory stick and sent him to his room, and he was still sobbing in his pillow. An hour later, when his mother came into the room, sat down in a rocking chair next to his bed. Now, she was the uh, oracle of the Eisenhower family. Uh, she was always saying things um, like sink or swim, survive or perish, uh, God deals the cards, we play them. But on this instance, she pulled a proverb out of her back pocket, Proverbs sixteen thirty two. He that conquereth his soul is greater than he that taketh a city. At 76 years of age, as Ike surveyed the landscape of his life, he identified one defining moment as a moment that made all the difference in the world. I've always looked back on that conversation as the most valuable moment in my life. To my youthful mind, it seemed like she talked for an hour, but I suppose the whole affair was ended in 15 or 20 Minutes. Now, Ike Eisenhower would grow up to be president, serve two ser- terms, uh, but his greatest contribution uh, probably came as the uh, supreme allied commander during Operation uh, Overlord when we uh, liberated France, invaded Germany, and of course it was initiated on D-Day, June 6, 1944. Self-control did not come naturally to Dwight D. Eisenhower. In fact, he ranked 125th out of 164 for discipline in his graduating class at West Point. And of, his, all, of all of his siblings, uh, his, his mother, Ida, said, uh, Ike, you're going to have the most to learn about controlling your passions. But <clears throat> as she bandaged his hands on this uh, faithful day, uh, she warned him that anger only injures the person who harbors it. Long before the supreme allied commander could lead the most powerful army in the world, uh, the world had ever seen, to defeat the Axis powers, a 10-year-old boy had to learn to conquer his soul. That one incident was an inciting incident, and that one proverb became the script of his life. We're in a series called Script, and uh, the idea is pretty simple. Over the course of your life, your favorite scripture becomes the script of your life. Huge thanks to our amazing staff who have shared some amazing messages over the last month. And uh, I haven't preached in a while, so you better pray that this isn't too long. Uh, now, it's hard for me to choose a life verse, a favorite verse. Uh, Jeremiah 1.5 uh, 
is my matrix for ministry. Before I formed you, uh, before I knew you, before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The Lord used that verse to call me into ministry. Uh, I love 2 Samuel 23, 20. Uh, A guy named Benaiah chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and killed it. Wrote a book about that 10 years ago, called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Just finished the sequel, uh, Chase the Lion, and uh, we'll give you a copy in September. Two books, uh, about one verse, but it's not my favorite, favorite verse. So um, uh, there's a few others. Uh, Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, I love Joshua 3, 5, consecrate yourselves to the Lord, and tomorrow he will do amazing things among you in Ephesians 3.20. Come on, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in, in, in all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love them all. Love them all. But if you put me in a half Nelson and pin me to the ground, which I don't think you could do, Uh, and ask me what's my favorite verse, I think I would say Ephesians 2.10. And uh, it's a short verse, but would you stand at all campuses as we read God's word together? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared for us in advance. Uh, hey, why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, you are God's workmanship. All right. All right. Don't get carried away. Baby, you're God's workmanship. Don't get too carried away. Did it hurt when you fell from heaven? I'm just setting up the guys, uh, the single guys. Hey, you can grab a seat. Um, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared for us in advance. For the next uh, 20 minutes, I want to unpack this verse of Scripture. To the average eye, it was a mutilated piece of marble in a boarded sculpture that had been abandoned 50 years before by Agostino de Duccio, But a young artist named Michelangelo saw something in the stone that others did not. Uh, He chiseled that 18-foot block of stone for four years. And that worthless block of stone was destined to become perhaps the greatest statue ever sculpted by Human hands. Now, Giorgio Vasari, uh, a 16th century artist and author, uh, called it nothing less than a miracle. Uh, Michelangelo resurrected a dead stone, breathed artistic life into it, and David came into existence. Now, as he chiseled, uh, Michelangelo envisioned, and forgive my Italian, um, what would be called the imagined del core or the image of the heart. Uh, he believed that the masterpiece was already inside the stone. All he had to do was remove the excess stone so that David could escape. He didn't see what was. He saw what could 
be. Didn't see the imperfections in the stone. Saw a masterpiece of unparalleled beauty. And that is precisely how your creator sees you. It might not be how we see each other every day of the week. But it's how God sees you. You are God's workmanship. It's the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English word poem, but, but it, can wor- uh, it can refer to really any work of art. Uh, you are God's painting. You are God's novel. You are God's sculpture. Christ is more of an artist than the artist, said Vincent van Gogh. He works in the living spirit and the living flesh. He makes men instead of statues. When you introduce yourself to someone, uh, how, how do you do it? Because there are a number of different ways, and often it depends on the setting, right? Uh, you can use your name, I'm Mark. Uh, you can use your occupation, uh, I'm a pastor. Uh, you can use your alma mater, if you want, uh, your favorite baseball team, um, highest earned degree. Uh, you can use your political affiliation, I'm a Democrat. <clears throat> or I'm a Republican. Thought I had you there for a second. I'm just, you know, 20 years I've kept this under wraps. Um, <laughs> uh, in certain settings, you're going to use an uh, addiction. I, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. Or, or listen, you, you can use a hobby or a sexual orientation or the race card. Uh, some people use their favorite movie. I'm a Trekkie. Um, you can even use, if, if you want to, a personality assessment. I'm an ENFP. Like, there are a thousand ways to thin slice who you are, but, but here's, here's my point. You're complicated, aren't you? You can't be reduced to a label, can you? You can't label me with one word, and I can't label you. Listen, that's an oversimplification, and yet we have this tendency to reduce people to a label. I think this is a huge deal. Here's what I think. Um, How you treat others is going to be a byproduct of how you see yourself. So who are you? Well, I'm going to tell you who you are. You are God's workmanship. That's who you are. Um, If you're going to reduce it to one label, it better be that. Um, You are God's workmanship. There never has been, never will be anyone like you. But that's not a testament to you. It's a testament to the God who created you. In other words, no one can worship God like you or for you. You are invaluable and irreplaceable. Why? Because you are God's workmanship. So why don't you turn to the person next to you one more time. Tell them like you believe it. You are God's workmanship. Now here's what I like to do. I'd like to give uh, my wife, Laura, uh, the last word on this subject. Um, I asked her just to share a few thoughts uh, about what it means to be God's workmanship coming out of some of her 
recent experience. And so uh, why don't you go ahead and watch this. So this issue of seeing people as God's workmanship really hit home for me about a month ago as a group of NCCers traveled to Greece. I joined them and we went to try to restore dignity and value to the refugees there on the border that have found themselves stuck. They are stuck because their cities and their homes have been bombed, so they can't go back but the border in front of them has been closed and so they can't go forward. So at the time that we were there, there were about 12,000 refugees that had created a camp there and really nowhere to go. So as we walked uh, in the camp, we began to learn faces and we began to learn names as they invited us into their tents for a cup of hot tea or a cup of hot coffee because they are some of the most hospitable people in the world and wanted to share what little they had. And what I discovered is that we heard stories not only of their harrowing journey that had gotten them this far and they are some really tragic stories, but we began to hear about their lives. We heard about the homes that they had and the garden that they had been working on and their kids' schedules and hobbies and, and the gatherings that they would have because they love to have people over. And I saw wedding pictures and pictures of kids at different moments in their lives. And we began to see the stories of their lives and we began to see that they were just like us. You see, I met Ahmed, who is a mechanical engineer, and his beautiful wife, Sohair, who is a math teacher. And they are living in a tent with their six children, hoping that they don't fall too far behind in their schoolwork, because education is very important to Sohair. We learned that they have struggles just like us, and they have hopes and dreams just like us. They dream of the future for their children. And there are moms and dads that are just doubting whether they are being a good parent and wondering if they made the right decisions for their kids. And there are husbands and wives that are that are going through the normal struggles of marriage in this location. Anyone that has to camp together more than a couple days knows what a challenge that could be on a marriage. So the struggles and the hopes and the dreams, they're just like us. They're just like us. And I think I used to see maybe the word refugee as an issue or a problem to solve. And instead now I see a face and I see a life that is just like mine. I see someone that was created in the image of God, someone that is God's workmanship. They are God's workmanship, just like me. And so whether it's the refugee across the ocean or the neighbor across your street, we have to see them as God's worship, workmanship because the way we treat people is a byproduct of the way we see them. And so we need to see them, not through a filtered glass, but as who they are, for who they are. They are God's creation, God's workmanship. Listen, not just an idea this weekend. What we need is a revelation from God. We need to see people through God's eyes. And when we do, it changes everything. Um, you know, we, we have a saying around here that uh, every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. Um, these aren't refugees, or you fill in the blank with any 
label. Uh, they're people with names and, and stories. And uh, isn't it great that we know two of them, Ahmed and Sohair? And so let's be praying for them. Uh, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared for you in advance. God is setting you up. Uh, the word prepared is taken from an ancient oriental custom uh, of sending servants ahead of a king uh, to prepare for safe passage. Uh, this week I had a conversation with a member of the secret service who attends this church. Won't tell you everything he said. Don't want to have to shoot you. Um, but fascinating stuff. He's, he's part of an advanced team, and he's done countless advanced trips. And I just asked him, like, what, is that, what does that look like? And, and he told me some of what I knew, but some of what I didn't know. Um, really interesting that, uh, listen, international trip, they might be there months in advance doing scouting reports and, and not just mapping routes, but secondary routes and a route to a hospital and a secondary hospital. I mean, they're shipping supplies and equipment. They're setting up phone lines and security systems. They plan everything right down to the minute. They check and discount double check everything. Nothing is left to chance. Why? Why? So that everything is prepared for the president's arrival. So that all the president has to do is show up. Now, are you ready for this? God flips the script. He uses this word not to describe what we do for him, but what the king does for his Servants. He is the God who goes before us, the God who fights our battles for us, the God who makes a way where there is no way, the God who sets us up. God wants you to get where God wants you to go more than you want to get where you want to go. And he's good at getting us there. God is in the business of positioning us in the right place at the right time. I want to tell you this weekend, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Everybody take a deep breath, all of our campuses, nice deep breath, and let it out. Come on, that's what the sovereignty of God does for us. Let's us relax for a moment. Why? Because God is still seated on his throne. I could share a couple dozen stories with you right here, but let me share one. Is it okay if I just testify right here? Um, I, this, I, I actually had a conversation this week about this for some reason, so I'll share this story. I think it was 2007, 2008, and uh, it's when I was putting together a life goal list, and, and, uh, and so I was just accumulating ideas and formulating it, and uh, one particular day, I, I added one, it's uh, life goal number 106, uh, to visit the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that's where Martin Luther uh, posted his 95 Theses, kind of domino effect, um, Protestant uh, Reformation. And I just thought it'd be really cool um, uh, to visit Wittenberg, Germany. The next day, I got a phone call inviting me to speak in Wittenberg, Germany at a symposium. Now, you need to understand, first time ever, that I had been invited to speak somewhere outside of this country. And I, I just, this, this would, 
it, it was the time frame. Sometimes God has to make it so undeniably clear so that we don't miss that he's the one who is setting us up. And so I went, I visited uh, the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany on Reformation Day that year. Awesome. Um, but that's just a piece of the story because then there were a couple of chain reactions. I took a staff member named John Hassler. And a few years later, John and Steph would open our cafe in Berlin, Germany. I don't think that domino happens without this piece right here. And then I meet uh, an author named George Barna, but more significantly his agent, Esther Federkevich. And uh, I didn't talk to Esther for two years. I already had an agent. Um, two years later, she's listening to a message that I preached where I happened to tell a story about a guy I just discovered in the Talmud called uh, Honey the Circle Maker. And so I tell a story, and that Monday she calls me and says, Mark, that's your next book. And so I make her my agent, and she gets that book deal. I write that book, and uh, it's another one of those chain reactions. What I'm getting at is this. Uh, it, it often feels like I'm walking around uh, use, in the dark hitting things with my shins, right, to try to find out what's next, where am I headed. But, but even on my worst day, I promise you, I, I believe that God is preparing good works, and it's who he is and it's what he does. Now, I also believe that we have a part of the equation, and this is what I want to talk about for a couple of minutes and maybe get up in our business. Now, before I do, let me just say this. All of those things, I couldn't orchestrate it, couldn't network it, couldn't script it. God did it. And, and then when you give God the glory for setting up those divine appointments, now you have to keep them. But when you do that, then he keeps going in advance and setting you up over and over again. So it says he is uh, preparing good works in advance. Now let me make a little observation right here. Good works require work. <laughs> Key word right here. Key word, work. You got to work it. Um, you got to pray like it depends on God, but you also have to work like it depends on God. You, listen, the sovereignty of God is not a free pass to sit back and do nothing. In fact, I love uh, this idea in Philippians 2.12. It says, work out, work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let me nuance this a little bit because I think this is critical. I want to make sure that no one uh, misunderstands what I'm saying. Our works are not our identity. If we find our identity in what we do, we're in trouble. Um, we need to find our identity in what Christ has done for us. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So, um, you know, am I called to pastor, called to write? Yes, yes, but I'm called to Jesus. That, that's my calling. And so uh, I find my identity in the person of Christ. Uh, you cannot earn your salvation with good works. It's by grace through faith. So you don't work for salvation, but evidently you need to work on it. You don't work for it, but you need to work 
on it to the point of fear and trembling. Now, I'll tell you what that, I mean, if you work out, if you go to the gym, you know that trembling, trembling, uh, that's a good sign right there. That you are pushing your muscles to their absolute limit. You are breaking down those muscle fibers. And that's the way then that they can be built back up and you gain strength. That's how you grow stronger. I'm just wondering this weekend, are you working it out? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Are you giving God the kind of effort that he deserves. Now, let me zero in right here um, a, a little bit. Listen to a fascinating podcast, um, Freakonomics uh, interview with Anders Ericsson. And I was familiar with his work. Um, he's the guy that kind of pioneered the 10,000 hour rule. And, but in this podcast was talking about deliberate practice and uh, has written a new book, Peak, that uh, I'm, I'm digging into. And the, the idea is pretty simple. Um, uh, deliberate practice, you have got to be practicing, and we'll put it in terms of physical exercise, um, at 70% maximal strength. In other words, when you do physical activity, your body has to be stressed, stressed to the point um, beyond 70% is kind of the threshold that Erickson puts out there uh, where homeostasis cannot be maintained. In other words, your body has to adjust to what's happening. Are you tracking with me? Because now I'm concerned about your physical health. Um, where your metabolism has to change because of the way that you are pushing your body. The body has to grow new capillaries to get more oxygen to your muscles. And then here's the crazy thing. Once you hit your goals, you know, a certain point of, of physical fitness, um, the workout that got you there won't get you to the next level. And so now you got to do it all over again. It's, it's called a stretch goal. You've got to have a stretch goal. And what's true physically is true spiritually. I mean, come on. You know that my job as a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Because... You tell me when was the last time you were uncomfortable, and I'll tell you the last time you grew. You've gotta, you got to get into a small group where people are getting into each other's business because iron sharpens iron. You have got to plug into a ministry where you're using your gifts and, and a little sweat equity in the kingdom of God. Why? Because that's how you grow spiritually. Now, what does any of that have to do with Ephesians 2.10? Well, God's, God's preparing good works in advance. He's doing his job. He's working the plan. He's working it. And, and I think we return the favor by uh, the good works that require hard work. Here's, uh, here's the great commandment. And by the way, my definition of greatness is being great at the great commandment. Come on. If we're going to be great at something, let's be great, loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the key word is all, right? And, and when it says all your strength, I just think you measure it in calories. Let's not overcomplicate this. You measure it in the exertion that you put forward for the kingdom of God. I think sometimes it's, it's setting the alarm a little bit early. It's kind of disciplining yourself to get up and, and get in the word. Um, it's blood, sweat, and tears. It's sweat 
equity. Are you giving God 70%? Now, I know it seems crazy, like, Pastor, shouldn't you be saying 100%? Let's start at 70. (laughs) Because physically, if you aren't at 70%, homie will say, you're not growing. You're not benefiting your body. You're maintaining. Sometimes I wonder when I come into worship, man, did I give God 70%? Or was I just giving him lip service? Because if I'm giving him lip service, I took a step back this weekend. Come on. Do, do we believe it? Are we, sing, are we not just singing the words, but proclaiming the promises of God when we sing them? Are we giving God the effort that he deserves? I'll tell you one more little story, and then we'll wrap it up. In 1984, uh, Rowdy Gaines won the gold medal uh, and set an Olympic record in the 100-meter freestyle, uh, 49.8. Seconds. Now, we boycotted the 80 games in Moscow, so we had eight years uh, to train for the Olympics. Uh, eight years uh, for a race that would last less than a minute. Um, over those eight years, he calculated that he swam an estimated 20,000 miles in 50-meter increments. If you add it up, Rowdy Gaines says, I swam around the world for a race that lasted 49 seconds. That's what Olympic athletes do, and they do it to win a gold medal. Isn't it interesting that the very word for judgment seat, now we won't stand before the judgment seat where we're in or out. The Bible uses a specific word, um, the judgment where we will be rewarded for the good works done in the body, right? Uh, Did you know it's the same word for the uh, award stand at the ancient Greek Olympics? Is there any coincidence here? Are we giving God the kind of effort um, that an athlete would give? Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it, work at it, work at it. It's all over the place if you put this filter on. Work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. Uh, Greek word suke uh, means do it like your life depended on it. Are we giving God that kind of effort? Listen, God gave us everything he's got. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting. God gave us everything. Are we giving it back to God? Now, I don't want you to walk away uh, from this weekend feeling overwhelmed. This isn't a church where we uh, beat each other up about what we've done wrong in the past. That we look forward and say, man, what does God have next? And so uh, how do you need to work out your faith? How do you need to work out your love? How do you need to work out grace? I think you got to get into God's word. I think you got to hit your knees in prayer. I think fasting helps. But what I'm saying is, you know, you know. When you go to the gym, you know what part of your body needs a little work, right? Gyms have mirrors for a reason. You're looking at the profile. You see it. Come on, spend a little bit of time in God's word. James calls it a mirror. Spend a little bit of time in front of the mirror, and God will quickly point out what it is that you need to work on. And the good news is, He's setting up, listen, he's prepared the good works in advance. But good works require work.
Let me close with this. Michelangelo's masterpiece, David, which I referenced at the very beginning, is enshrined at the Galleria del Academy in Florence, Italy. Thousands of tourists wait every day to just get a glimpse of David, but most of them don't really notice a, a corridor uh, in the Academia of unfinished sculptures, um, a hand here, uh, a leg there, a torso, part of a head. They, they were statues that were intended to adorn the tomb of Pope Julius II, but they're non-finiti. Uh, in other words, they're stuck in stone. They're uncompleted, and uh, Michelangelo called them captives. Jesus said, I came to set the captive free. Listen, the journey begins by surrendering your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, your creator, your redeemer, the one who you mean the cross to Christ. He went to a cross because he loves you that much and believes in your future that much. He doesn't see who you are. He sees who you can become. Why? Because he's the one that saw David in the stone. He sees the imagined. You are God's workmanship. But you got to put yourself on the potter's wheel. You got to surrender yourself to the process. And it begins by surrendering yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I think at an end of a series like this, um, listen, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. You gotta give him full editorial control. And if you do, he will begin to write a beautiful story through your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We bless you. You're the God who got us here. And you're the God who's going to get us where we need to go. Lord, forgive us for sometimes being uh, unable to see others the way that you see us. But give us, God, give us eyes to see. Give us your eyes to see others as your workmanship. God, give us a sense of destiny embedded deep within our soul that you have prepared good works in advance. And God, give us a sanctified work ethic that we would be a people that give you everything we've got so that your kingdom would come, so that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.